Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. My guest today is director, writer, actor, and producer Robert Townsend, whose directorial debut, Hollywood Shuffle, stands alongside Stranger Than Paradise, She's Gotta Have It, and Sex, Lies, and Videotape as one of the most influential and important American independent films of the 80s. It's also one of the funniest comedies ever made. Hollywood Shuffle is a brilliant satire about the limited options available to black actors in Hollywood, but thankfully its success allowed Townsend to build a career based on ignoring limitations. In the 36 years since Hollywood Shuffle's release, he's done just about every type of directing there is. He's made musicals like The Five Heartbeats and Carmen and Hip Opera. He's directed superhero stories like Meteor Man for film and Black Lightning on TV. He's done biopics, kids movies, crime movies, live concert movies. In fact, he did what I think is the greatest stand-up movie in history, Eddie Murphy Raw. And he's created TV series. And in just the past few months, he's directed episodes of Kaleidoscope for Netflix and The Best Man for Peacock. But today he's here to talk about the movie that started it all, Hollywood Shuffle, which is newly available from Criterion on a special edition Blu-ray that has a gorgeous transfer of the movie and extras that include a terrific commentary track that I think is must-listening for any aspiring filmmaker, or any experienced one, for that matter. So, Robert, I guess... (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that intro, brother. (laughs) I like me. (laughs) Well, I want to sort of try to create a context for people listening to this who are younger than you and I, you know, and who are used to making movies on their phones with DSLRs and things like that. I want to try to sort of, I don't know if it's even possible to give people a picture of what it was like to make an independent film in the eighties and what the landscape was like then, because, you know, I remember when Hollywood Shuffle came out, I was a teenager and there, you hear filmmakers talk about Lawrence of Arabia or Star Wars. You know, I, I wanted to become a director when I saw Lawrence of Arabia. Or I wanted to become a director when I saw Star Wars. I wanted to become a director when I saw Hollywood Shuffle because that film just felt seismic in the way it showed what was possible. And again, nowadays, I don't know if people realize how difficult it was to do what you did. I mean, can you describe a little bit what the independent film scene was like in the mid 80s when you were making this movie? See, what people don't understand is that there was a time in in the cinematic dark ages <laughs> where uh, to make a movie, you needed a 35 millimeter camera. You needed film stock. Film stock, uh, 10 minutes of film was maybe $1,000. And you also, so that means uh, you have 10 minutes to shoot a scene. If somebody makes a mistake, you've got to get another magazine. So you're three minutes into the scene and somebody goes, oops, I forgot my line. And you go like, okay, the scene is seven minutes long. you got to reload the film. Film could cost you easy $20,000 and then you got to process it. And you had no room to play. Uh, also editing, you needed, uh, we edited on film. You got to get the film processed. You got to splice the film, cut the film. So there were all these hurdles just to make a movie because of it, it because of cost. So back then, n- no one was making any movies. Uh, technology was the way the studio was set up. You have to shoot on film. You have to have a focus puller and da da da. All those pieces of crew that needed to make a film. So everyone was f- afraid, you know, because. The task of uh, it was a daunting task to say I'm going to make a movie back then. So as an independent filmmaker with Hollywood Shuffle, I was more fed up with the treatment of black people in Hollywood. Rather than complain, 
I opened my big mouth and said, I'll make a movie. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was in for, but back then no one was making movies. So when you went through the list of the indies that uh, were done around that same time, She's Gotta Have It and all the other films, we were just we were all a pack of desperate, hungry men that had a passion burning so deep in our hearts that we could not be denied. So that's so so if you want to say, you mean you couldn't afford it? No, there was it was too much. Did you have any kind of role models in mind? Like were you thinking about guys like John Cassavetes and Melvin Van Peebles or anybody like that? Or did you feel kind of alone in the wilderness setting out to do this? It was kind of alone in the wilderness because I didn't, here's the thing, I, I, I was enjoying a career as an actor and a stand-up comedian. I was working at the Improvisation in New York and uh, I was doing, you know, I was one of the regulars at the Improv. Jay Leno was the MC, Rodney Dangerfield, Jerry Seinfeld, Billy Crystal. So I was in that world and uh, and then I was making movies. I did my first film, A Soldier Story, with Norman Jewis and Denzel, Adolf Caesar. So I was on a whole nother thing. And then when I, you know, after Soldier Story, you know, I said, this is the movies I want to do. And Hollywood was like, they only do one a year. Shut up and get back in line and start playing pimps again. And I just said, how do I break out of the box? And I think... That's where, you know, I just said, okay, I'll make movies. I didn't know Oscar Micheaux existed. I didn't know all these people existed. Then after I got into it, I said, oh, Josh Cassavetes, whoa. You know, but it was after because I didn't go like, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I was just like, I'm tired of this. I'll do my own thing. So that's how it started. You did have a few really interesting movies that you were in around this time. You mentioned Soldier Story. You're in one of my favorite movies of all time, Streets of Fire. And it's interesting. <laughs> you know, the, I was thinking about the Sorrells in that movie because it's you. I think it's Grand Bush who's Grand also Bush, in Grand Bush, yes. And isn't Michael T. Williamson also Michael T. Williamson, Stoney Jackson right. is the lead singer. Right. Yes. So you did that with Walter Hill. You did Soldier Story with Norma Jewison. You did American Flyers with John Badham. You know, when you were doing those movies with those guys, was there anything, you know, those are all very strong directors. Was there anything that you absorbed or observed doing those movies that found its way into your directing or was your, I know you also had a theater background. Was that more where your kind of approach to directing came from? You know, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> there's two, it's it, one, you're absolutely right. It was the theater for me because I'm from Chicago and I started in the theater when I was 14 years old, um, I was the youngest member of a theater group called X-Bag, Experimental Black Actors Guild, on the south side of Chicago. And then I eventually moved to another theater on the west side. But in the theater, there were uh, uh, directors that were of color, writers, set design, producers. So the idea of being a director and a producer and a writer wasn't far-fetched because I saw it in the theater. So I came out of that. But I have a story, you know, that I did extra work for seven years in New York City. And I was on another Walter Hill movie, and I told this story. I gave Keenan a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Austin Film Festival, and they were also giving Walter Hill a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I told this story, you know, in front of Walter and everybody because I said that was the day I kind of, a seed was planted in my head. So anyway, here's the story real quick. Um, I was in the, I was an extra in the film Warriors. Oh, wow. The classic film Warriors. Warriors come out to play, yay. 
And so anyway, there's uh, I'm in the the riffs. Uh, the riffs are the gang where our Cyrus is speaking. And if you don't know the movie The Warriors, it's about a gang summit in New York City. All the gangs have come together, and the gang that I was in, the Riffs, uh, Cyrus is making this impassioned speech about coming together, community, and we could fight, and someone shoots him in the middle of the peace summit, and somebody says, the Warriors did it, and the whole movie is about the Warriors trying to get to Coney Island. Anyway, we're shooting in Central Park. It's 700 extras out there, and 100 are real actors, and the rest are gang members. And so the prop department handed out sticks, bottles, chains, bats, (laughs) and says, when you hear action, you know, use your weapons. We got nine cameras and just run because Cyrus has been shot. And people were getting hurt. You know, people, you know, like, where is the SAG rep? Where is the SAG rep? You know, and so so I didn't want to run. I was like, I don't want to run. I don't want to get hurt. And we got to run every take. And so I said, you know what? The body fell over there. I'll be the one soldier that will stay with the body. <laughs> so when they started rolling, A camera, B camera, C camera, slate, I ran to the body. And so everybody's running around crazy. And I'm just standing by the body, you know, looking intense. And then over the megaphone, I hear the voice of the first AD, the guy near the body, stay near the body. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so after it was over with, the guy came over and said, the director loved what you did. You just got upgraded. You're going to make more money. He goes, and, and so then we took a 20-minute break. And I was like, what are we breaking for? What's going on? And then when we came back, they had blocked the scene around me. And in that moment, I, I was like, I affected the scene. I, this little young actor in the middle of 700 people, affected the scene. And after that, every time I walked on set, even though I was an extra, I walked on the set like I was a director. What are we shooting today? What's the first shot? (laughs) And then that's when I started to learn about directing in a weird, crazy way. You know, it's one thing to say, I want want to make a movie uh, like you and Keenan did with Hollywood Shuffle, but it's another thing to actually start and get it off the ground. So what were your first steps to actually making this a reality after you had these, you know, you talk on the commentary track about these conversations you had with Keenan about the terrible experiences you were both having as actors and how you wanted to turn that into a movie. But what are the first kind of practical steps you take to get this off the ground? You know, I I say this to, to filmmakers all the time. I keep everything very simple, very simple. It's kind of like, um, Hey, we're going to do a scene in a movie theater. You know, they don't treat, they don't give, they don't review black movies the same way they review. They don't know our story, so they give us bad reviews. Hey, we need a movie theater. Hey, there's a movie theater up the street. Knock, knock. Hi, I'm a filmmaker. We don't have a lot of money, um, but we can mop the floor for about three weeks and give you free labor. Really? Okay, deal. Just you got to get four hours to shoot, but before the eleven o'clock movie start, if you can get in and out. Hey, I don't know cinema. I don't know filmmakers. Uh, UCLA, uh, USC, uh, AFI. Let's just go over there and ask if there's a cinematographer. Uh, actors, man. Let's call every actor that we ever auditioned against. You know, hey man, I like you, man. We've never worked together, but you want to be in it. Hey, I think you're you're a really talented actress. You know, I'm not trying to hit on you. I'm trying to really do a movie. Would you want to be in it? I don't have money. Work with me. So we just like like the Andy Hardy movie. Let's put on a show. It was that simple and easy on a whole nother level. You don't know what you don't know. There were a lot of people that said no, but we just kept it like very simple. For example, scouting locations. I talk about this on the commentary. 
I just looked at locations where the police couldn't see us because we didn't have money for permits. So I go, hey, the police ain't going to come all the way up here. So, yeah, we can shoot cameras over here. Oh, the police can't see us in between these buildings. This is perfect. So, I, you know, and I, I didn't understand doing a call sheet, but I said, okay, meet, meet at my house at 5 o'clock in the morning. Don't park in front of my house because police could see us. So park three blocks away. Um, let's do it Sunday morning, all our outside stuff, because the world is asleep. The police are not looking for anything. If it's Saturday morning, everybody's up. So I kind of just thought through it from a very strategic way, but a very logical way. Yeah, and you also had that great tip on the commentary track about how you would uh, you'd shoot on the weekend so that you could rent the camera on Friday and hold on to it and return it Monday, <laughs> but you're only paying for one day. One day. I mean, every trick in – I mean, it, it, it that was – because back then, you could pick the camera up on Thursday, you know, so you say, I'm shooting on Friday, and I'll have it back Friday at at, at, at 6 o'clock. Oh, we're not going to make 6 o'clock. Sorry. We're stuck in traffic. Okay, we'll bring it back Monday, 9 o'clock. Keep shooting, you know, and that's how it how it started. Well, and you mentioned the cinematographer and the DP on this movie is Peter Deming, who is now a legend. I mean, this guy shot Mulholland Drive, and yes. you know, he shot some of the best-looking movies of the last— 30 years. How did you uh, how did you come to work with him and what were the conversations like that the two of you had about what you wanted for the visual style of the movie? You know, I, I, I we were let me say this. Uh, we were young filmmakers on a journey. So Peter, I think he had just come out of AFI or what have you. And I think it was my producer, Carl Craig, who was also like you know, we got to find a cinematographer. Okay, call over there, call over there. And then Peter showed up. And I just remember talking with Peter and just to, to because I didn't know how to, you know, talk in cinematic terms, you know, back then. But it's kind of like saying, hey, can you light us like they like Billy D. Williams? You know, that's the only thing we knew. <laughs> like, light us like Billy D. Williams. He looks good. <laughs> and that was the thing that we wanted. And Peter was like, okay, light you like Billy D. Williams. And, uh, he really understood the comedy as well. So one of the hardest things when you are the co-writer, the director, the lead actor, you know, all of that, someone's got to protect you and watch you because you're in front of the camera and behind the camera. And I really have to give nothing but the most to, to Peter because he was the one who made sure the compositions worked when I was had another hat on. And I constantly had that other hat on. So, uh, you know, because sometimes people say, how do you act and direct? You know, you need a great cinematographer that understands what you're going for. Well, it's something he's so good at in this movie is emulating these styles of different movies that you're parroting. Like, I, I always think this is such a great first film because you can tell that you – you didn't know if you were ever going to make another movie again. So you're just throwing everything you like yes, into this one movie. And yes, so sir. you've got, you're doing, you're using it as an excuse to do a Maltese Falcon type movie. You're using it as an excuse to have, you know, a black exploitation horror movie in it, a Dirty Harry movie. You know, all these things you're parodying, you can also tell that you, you like them too. I love you, them. Yeah. I love those genres. I mean, it's like when I was a kid, I wanted to be... Yeah, it's looking at you, kid, out of all the stinking gin joints. <laughs> me, me, Rick, save me, Rick, Rick. You know, I know those movies like the back of my hand. So, you know, when you talk about a love of movies, when I was a kid, you know, my nickname was TV Guide because I knew everything about television. And I discovered, you know, that's why, you know, like when you talk about that, when I was a kid, all I did was watch television, and but I studied it. I studied television like 
you know, it's like when they talk about your 10,000 hours, you know, of, you know, getting good at something. I watched movies, but I would watch them again and again of like how it was laid out. So, so yeah, so I was trying to get everything in a movie. Well, and yeah, there's, there's so many great, you know, affectionate parodies. And I was wondering, I wanted to ask about some of the people and the films that you parodied, if you ever heard from them, like, you know, for example, you talked about the whole movie review thing. I can't remember if Siskel and Ebert actually reviewed Hollywood Shuffle on oh, their yes. show. Did they, and did they like it? Oh, uh, you, you know, uh, Roger Ebert did. I don't think Gene Siskel, because here's the thing. Gene, I think, was a little harder on the film, but when, you, you know, Roger got it, because it's kind of like, like even now when people... Um, like as we started our discussion and you go can you put it can you put it in the framework for the young filmmakers now they have no reference to the fact that you couldn't shoot anything so i think in hindsight to get anything done in the 80s and it come out good and it come out great is a miracle so i think uh gene siskel was a little bit harder where roger ebert was like Wow, Robert Townsend, you know, he, you know, he's doing characters and accents and blah, 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 blah. And this is his first movie. Um, and, he, and he's still learning. I was learning. You know, I'm on a learning curve. It's not like I do movies every day. It was like, eh, action. <laughs> I was still learning. So, so um, they both, you know, because over the years, I would see uh, Roger Ebert and, you know, he was like a champion you know, for new voices, and he he really took to my voice. Well, you know, you mentioned you were still, you know, this was basically your film school. You were learning how to make a movie on, on this film. And I'm sure with some of your fellow actors who are in it, there was this, you know, sense of enthusiasm and all that. When you had somebody like Paul Mooney, who was more, you know, is like very established and, you know, been doing, been around for a long time, you know, what was his reaction to you as a director? So let me, let me, okay, so Paul, uh, uh, so I have to to say it with some colorful language. So uh, I knew Paul from the stand-up comedy world. And when I saw Paul and we started to make the movie, we were at the comedy store and I was a regular, he was a regular. And then I said, Paul, I'm going to make a movie. And then Paul was like, uh, have you ever directed a movie before? No. Uh, have you ever written a movie before? No. And I said, no. And he goes, either you're the dumbest motherfucker I've ever met or you're a genius. Yes, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what he said to me. I was just, because I was like, he goes like, yes. And Paul, all I got to say um, is that he changed my life. You know, he changed. You know, it's so funny because Keenan moved out to L.A. first. And then he called me and said, hey, Rob, you got to get to L.A. I was still living in New York doing TV commercials, extra work and all of that. And Keenan flew back, drove me across country. And when I got to L.A., he says, man, we got to get to the comedy store. There's this comedian going on at 1.30, and he's brilliant. And I was like, if he's brilliant, why is he going on at 1.30? And so he goes, shut up, man. Get in the car. Let's go. And so at 1.30, we go to the comedy store, and Paul blew my brain wide open because he was so free, and he was saying thoughts and energy and stuff that was very real, we thought never said. So when I think about Hollywood Shuffle and his influence, the revolution kind of started with him because I was hearing these ideas, and then I was like, well, okay, how do I get it out of my head and get it into a film? But it started with him, and he was just a treat. He was like 
Oh, 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 I want to be the president of the NAACP, homie. Oh, that's what I want to do. I want to do. I want to, I want to read them and let them know. And so Paul would, you know, he showed up and he just brought his whole thing. And we, the, the thing for me, what I learned in my first film is if you can create fertile soil for the actors to play in, they'll give you everything. And I just tried to have fun and we had fun. And I just created fertile soil. And I think everybody in this little film did some of their best work. I agree. I mean, I think you've got great people. You know, like John Witherspoon, for example, he's always funny. I've never seen him in a movie not be funny. But I also don't know if I've ever seen him as funny as he is in the Winky Dinky Dog stuff. Yes. I mean, he's just – that all of that stuff with him and Keenan and you and, and I can't remember the other actor's name who works at Winky Dinky Dog. But, I mean, that stuff is so hilarious and I have to think – it grows out of some kind of personal experience. I mean, when you were younger, did you face that kind of, th you know, that kind of thing with like being around these people who just like had nothing going on in their lives, but they're going to tell you what an idiot it, you are for wanting to pursue a career in the arts. It was based on my, a real job that I had on the West. I used to work at a place called Yankee Doodle Dandy on the West side of Chicago. And it was a place that was uh, on Central Boulevard near Lake Street and we had the, you know, the fluorescent lights, I mean, the, uh, uh, the the big lights and all of that. But it was a strip where all the pimps and hookers would come. And the manager, Mr. Whitfield, he was like John Weathersfield in a movie. He was this African-American man that was like a real entrepreneur. So he had written out scripts for us. Would you like a dandy burger with fries? How about an apple pie with that? And we had this script that we would do. And the, the stuff that was crazy was that the pimps would come in and we had to do the script. And it was like, hey, sir, would you like an apple pie? Motherfucker, I didn't ask for no apple pie. You know? And then we'd go like, would you like fries? Did I ask for fries? You know? And we would just take abuse. You know? But Mr. Whitfield had that. And, and it was like, you don't understand, Robin. You know, you know, uh, 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 Yankee Doodle Dandy's gonna be a big franchise, and he would talk this talk, but it didn't really go any place. But I had people there that I would share. I'm gonna be a big actor, and people, you ain't never gonna do nothing. And and it, so I took all of that. And Keenan had the similar story in New York, so we combined both stories. You you know, you mentioned on the commentary track that basically you shot this over 12 days, 12 days over the course of two years. So you're, you're self-financing this. You're, you're putting your own money in. Yes. And did you have any idea, did or, did or, you know, basically how you were going to get your money back? And did you care? Was it just, I want to make the movie? I'm not thinking about that. Or were you starting to stress out? You know, once you get a year in and your money's going out the door and I'm sure you're probably making mistakes that are costing more money than you thought it was going to and all that. I mean, what was your stress level like at that you time? Know, you know, I got to tell you, we were having so much fun. I just remember the first time we saw dailies at Photo Kim in Burbank in this little screening room, me and Keenan sitting there, and we had done all the shooting and Peter Deming, and we were looking and we were like, oh my God. This is really good. It's funny. Oh, man, that's funny. Oh, my. Okay, we could edit that with that. And so we were just exploring. So it was kind of like being um, not like a junkie, but you're like, you're jonesing to shoot more. You say, oh, my God, this is good. So it wasn't so much stress. It was more like we were just having fun. And so it wasn't, I, I didn't think about distribution. I didn't think about anything. I was just like, I'm making a movie. And I opened my big mouth and everybody showed up. So I, it, there was no like, and this is the plan. And then we'll go to distribution. We've got to go to Fox. And then let's go over to Paramount. You know, no, 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 no. It was just like, let's just shoot a movie.
And, you know, and when we get to that point of distribution, we'll see what we have. And um, I was doing stand-up comedy, so you go on the road, you make money. You know, you, you, you blow some money, and I knew the game of Hollywood, you know. Uh, I'll get a TV commercial. Uh, I'll guest star on a TV show. I'll do some stand-up. So uh, the, the money that was in the bank, I was just like enjoying the process and into the flow. So it wasn't really like, I got to finish this. I, there was no finish line because I didn't know what the finish line was. Well, I was wondering once you did finish it, how you how you did, you know, go about getting it out into the world. Because, you know, at this time, you know, Sundance wasn't what it would become. Most of the other film festivals we talked about didn't even exist. I mean, how do you get your movie in front of distributors and all that kind of thing? Then there was a point where at some point there was an awareness of the independent film market. And, and I love art films anyway. So I would always go to the new art or the, the different cinemas uh, and see like art films and like uh, from, you know, French films like the obscure desire or something by Truffaut. I, you know, I, I, since, since I was TV guide as a kid in the hood, I would like, you know, fall in love with different, I love language. So I, I would love those French films because I, sometimes I didn't know what they were saying when I was a little kid and you say, he loved her. Why are you leaving me? I love you. And I used to love the language. So when we finished uh, the rough cut of Hollywood Shuffle, I had seen enough names on those films at those little cinemas to say, Island, Samuel Goldwyn, da-da-da-da. And I just remember there were only a handful. And, um, you know, again, Carl, the producer, Rick, producer, everybody says, oh, we got to go to Samuel Goldwyn. And so we showed it to Samuel Goldwyn. And Sam Sam Goldwyn Jr., God bless him, he's passed away in the last few years. Um, Sam saw the movie and I just remember being in the screening room and I was like, is he going to change something? Because I didn't know the process. You know, I go, we love this. We love this. And I just remember after it was over with, he sat there and he laughed at different points because there's universal comedy. And then when it was over with, you know, we we're like, is he going to make us change something to take something out, cut it? And so then he goes, oh, the, the, the thing, uh, Bob, the thing with the Jerry Curl. And we we're like, yeah. Yeah. He goes, I don't know what a jerry curl is, but that's funny. <laughs> Keep it. You know, and I just remember I was like, oh, Sam is cool because he he didn't know what he didn't know. And he got out of his way where I think sometimes executives, they may step on a joke or, you know, you know, give notes and you got to address their notes. He just let us alone. And he just, you know, he says, OK, this is really good. We, You know, and then the legend of the credit cards came out of talking to Sam because after he signed, you know, and said, I want the movie, I said, can I get my check? And he was like, you know, he says, okay, you know, I, I just need that because, because, you know, he goes, what, what's going on? You know, do, do you have like a, a loan shark or something coming after you? And I go, no, I charged the movie on credit cards and uh, I got to pay, you know? And so then he was like, you did what? And then I kind of broke down uh, my strategy. I was like, okay, Visa, MasterCard, preferred Visa, MasterCard, Chevron, Shell, Mobile, if I had to put gas in people's tanks, uh, if I had to, you know, you know, buy furniture, food, blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of broke down how I did everything. And he was like, that's brilliant. 
He says, we should tell the whole world. And I said, well, no, 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 because everybody thinks the movie is cheap. He goes, no, 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 you, the, you're very creative. And so then that became a hook for the movie. But then when people saw the movie, they genuinely enjoyed the movie. Yeah, no, it was a great story. I, again, I remember as a kid when the movie came out that that was part of the whole the legend. You probably you probably sent generations of young filmmakers into horrible debt putting movies on their credit cards that didn't sell to Samuel Goldwyn. But. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, because they, they, they wanted me – there was talk about doing a commercial for American Express, and then at some point they said no because he'll be the poster boy and everybody will get credit cards and he could really change our ecosystem because everybody will be charged out, overextended because of th this guy. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mentioned in the intro that after Hollywood Shuffle, you directed – You know, I think there's two truly great – stand-up concert films. One's Richard Pryor live in concert, the other one's Eddie Murphy Raw. And um, it's interesting to me that you did Eddie Murphy Raw after Hollywood Shuffle because that's, now you're going into a whole different kind of directing. I mean, that to me, I don't even know how you approach doing something like that. How did you, how did that come about? How did you get that job? And, and what was it about it that excited you about doing something like that that was so different from Hollywood Shuffle? Everything goes back to Hollywood Shuffle. So in Hollywood Shuffle, there's a scene where we, you know, we make fun of Eddie Murphy. We go, what we're looking for is an Eddie Murphy type. And then there's 20 guys in blackface looking like Eddie Murphy in leather jackets like he would wear. So Keenan didn't want to put that scene in the movie. So Keenan was like, Rob, we can't put that in a movie. You know, it's like, we know Eddie and we can't make fun of Eddie. You know, and I'm like, man, why not? Eddie makes fun of everybody and they want us to be Eddie Murphy types. And what people don't understand is that, Back then, Eddie was a mega, mega, mega star. It's like if you put Kevin Hart with The Rock and George Clooney plus Julia Roberts and put them all together, that's who Eddie Murphy was. And you go like, that big? That big. So Keenan was like, let's not do it. Let's not do it. So anyway, I go, Keenan, they want us to be Eddie Murphy types. You keep seeing it in a breakdown like I do. I'm putting it in there. I'm directing it. You know, I'll write the scene. I'll put it in there. So then I put it in the movie, do the whole scene. Uh, we go to Europe. Uh, Sam sends us to Europe for a European tour. We go to France. We go to Germany. We go to Norway. And then uh, as we're heading home, Keenan checks his answering machine, and he goes, Rob, listen to this. And it's Eddie. Hey, man, everybody talking about this Hollywood shuffle. Rob, Keenan, when can I see this movie? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, God, oh, God. So we get back, and we have a screening for Eddie at the um, in Burbank at Photo Kim in the screening room. Eddie shows up with an entourage of 15 people, and they're there to see the movie. They're laughing, having a great time, all of this, and then it gets to the scene. What we're looking for is an Eddie Murphy type, and then the whole room gets quiet. Everybody dies. Everybody's just going out, and then Eddie starts laughing. And he goes, oh, that's funny, that's funny. Then the room starts laughing. And then he goes, hey, Rob, um, this is brilliant. You know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm apologizing. I'm like, Eddie, you know, I'm sorry if you offended. Keenan didn't want that scene in the movie, and I'm apologizing. He says, no, 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 it was brilliant. He says, I'm looking to do this stand-up concert film. I'm looking for a director. Do you want to direct it? And then that's how it came about. And then I was like, yeah. He says, it's going to be called Raw. And that's that's how it all started. And I was just he could have had any director in Hollywood. And the fact that he just chose me was just beautiful. Like, how did you even learn the logistics of shooting something like that, like a live event where you're responding to what Eddie's doing? I mean, how many like how many cameras are you shooting something like that with? Like, it just seems like it would be 
an enormous undertaking. We we shot with six cameras, but you know, I had, you know, Ernest Dickerson who now is you know, he directed Juice and he was a cinematographer, Spike doing Malcolm. You know, you know, you you have a team, everybody does their part, everybody helps out, but I had done stand up, you know, on television before. And so that was one of the one of the other reasons that made me want to direct. I did Evening at the Improv. And uh, it was a stand-up comedy show based on comedy coming from the improvisation. And it was shot out at the Improv on Melrose here in Hollywood. And uh, I remember I was watching this show. And I was doing this one gag. And it was with my hands. And the end of the gag was something like, yeah. And then this always got me a big laugh on stage. I forgot what the, it was something with my hands. And they cut to this. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no, the joke, you know. So, so that was that was the first time too. Also in my head about directing. So, when I was uh, directing Raw, I was thinking through. Okay, oh, Eddie's does something physical with his body there. Oh, his. Oh, I got to be tight in here because he's going to do the whole. Because you know to be the jag, you know. And I was like, oh, I, side profile. Good evening. I know, you know. So I'm looking at everything, and just I don't know. It's just like kind of like a fish to water. I just understood. So, you know, I looked at the act and I was just thinking through that, you know, and we just kind of talked. But that's how it came together. And then, you know, as I said in the intro, you went on to have this great career that's still going on where you seems to me like you just are always kind of looking for different things that you haven't done. And, and you know, are you still as enthusiastic about directing and filmmaking as you ever were? Even more. Let me, let me, let me say this. I have a, a, a slate right now and it's really crazy. I wake up in the morning just really happy. I'm touching all kinds of things. I like, you know, I think real artists paint on as many different canvases as possible. Real artists to me. So I've got musicals, uh, I've got dramas, I've got science fiction, you know, I mean, the stuff that's in my head is really different. And the the latest thing uh, that I did before COVID hit, I was doing a one-man show about my life at the Marsh Theater in Berkeley, and I was only supposed to do it for like a month, and we kept getting extended, and I did it for like three months, and I had the best time, because it's all these stories about my life, and it's just, you know, so I, I, I just want to continue to challenge myself, okay, this, this. So there's movies in my head, television shows, um, and just continuing to create. I, I love what I do and my body of work, as you said in your intro, I, I've done all these different genres. I, I there's not you know, like and and you know, I think that's what real directors like like my hero is Steven Spielberg. I mean, he could touch any genre and turn it upside down. And so for me, uh I, I'm about quality and raising the bar, but I I I, I am forever blessed to be an artist. So I just want to challenge myself more, 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 more. Well, I guess the last thing I want to touch on is, uh, you know, you mentioning that you are, a, you know, that you love these Truffaut movies and Bunuel movies and things like that. And I remember when I first moved out to LA, uh, I went to see a screening of The Conformist, the Bertolucci movie, and I saw you in the audience. And I remember being so happy. I was like, oh, Robert's one of us. He's a cinephile. <laughs> and and uh, I've got to ask, you know, now you've got Hollywood Shuffle out in this edition from Criterion. And, and again, I want to stress to people listening, this is a must own for aspiring filmmakers. It's such a great commentary track. And, but I've, I'm assuming that for you, you've probably 
consumed Criterion Laserdiscs and DVDs and things like that over the years? I mean, was it what was it like for you to find out they were going to put you in the collection? You know, uh, so that was always my special treat, like the criteria i used to buy the laser disc the big fat ones and i would and i had the laser the latest laser unit so that i could see the chapter stop the chapter the audio da 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 da, da. it has been an honor it's a true honor because you create something you hope people will want to watch it again maybe again maybe maybe they'll quote a line you know maybe oh for halloween they dressed up like you know, zombie pimps. Okay, that's a little, that's different. Oh, there's a restaurant called Winky Dinky Dog. But when it comes to the the highest bar of filmmaking and filmmaking honors, the Criterion Collection is something, I mean, Hitchcock, everybody, I studied those. I just love, because you want to know, how did you do that? How did you, you know, Aaliyah Kazan, my favorite director, how, how did you do on the waterfront? What was it like with Brando? So, you know, like, I, I'm a blessed man. I'm so blessed. I'm so, you know, so when when I when I when they reached out and said, hey, would you want to do this? And I was like, yeah. And then I had never done a commentary track on, I did a commentary track for Criterion for one of my favorite movies, Claudine. And, uh, but I had never done on mine. And so it was a treat to revisit Hollywood Shuffle, and it's kind of like rocket fuel because it fuels me to, you know, the new stories in this next chapter of my life. Yeah, well, it was a treat for me to revisit the movie, and it's been an honor to talk to you. So thanks so much for doing this, Robert. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and and I just want to shout out to your mother. Thank you for the cards. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.